Hello, friends. Welcome. You've come to the right place. If you're interested in sustainability, my name is Justin Mulligan. This is Sustainability Now here on your community radio station, Forward Radio. We broadcast from the historic Habern building at 106.5 FM. And you may be listening to us on our live stream. You can catch anywhere in the world at forwardradio.org. Whether you are or not, please go online to forwardradio.org and become a part of our community radio station today. We built it for you. It's radio for the people, by the people. That means we need you, the people, behind these microphones and chipping in a few bucks to help keep us on the air. It only takes $20 a day for this great community treasure. So if you've been enjoying what you're hearing on the station and you want to support it or jump in and become a part of it, go to forwardradio.org right now. Well, what we've got today on the show is a really special treat. I'm going to bring you the University of Louisville's 2021 Grawmeyer Award Lecture that just took place on April 13th about global environmental governance, and it features Ken Konka. He's the 2021 Grawmeyer Award winner for Ideas Improving World Order, and he spoke on his award-winning ideas that were set forth in his book, An Unfinished Foundation, the United Nations and Global Environmental Governance. Konka is an American University international relations professor and member of the UN Environment Program's Expert Advisory Group on Conflict and Peacebuilding, and he founded the Environmental Peacebuilding Working Group in Washington, D.C. He was a reviewer for the fifth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and served on a scientific steering committee for the International Human Dimensions Program on Global Environmental Change. He has twice won the International Studies Association's Award for Best International Environmental Affairs book. It was a real, real pleasure to have him present to the University of Louisville community on April 13th virtually and we're going to share it with you here now on Sustainability Now and while we're listening to Ken Konka get your calendars out and your pencils sharpened my friend we're going to have our community action calendar coming up at the end of the show with all sorts of ideas for how you can make change for sustainability right here right now in Louisville but let's take a global perspective this week and turn the microphones over to Ken Konka University of Louisville's 2021 Grawmeyer Award winner for Ideas Improving World Order. At the outset, I'd like to thank the many people in and around the United Nations who've helped me understand the various ways that it engages the very important environmental challenges facing the planet and its people. And make no mistake, those challenges are enormous. Two-thirds of the world's fish stocks are being fished to the limit or overfished. It's estimated that 25% of the Earth's land surface, excluding the polar ice caps, 25% suffers from degraded soils. The rate of global deforestation has slowed, but the world still loses an area equivalent to the state of Kentucky, ironically, each year. Human activities from fertilizers and from industrial pollution and automobile exhaust load more nitrogen into the global nitrogen cycle than the background natural flows. We have in essence become the nitrogen cycle through our activities. And I haven't even mentioned climate change. And it's important to stress that these are not statistical abstractions. There are an estimated 3 million people each year that die prematurely from air pollution. There's a couple of billion people 
on the planet who lacks safely managed drinking water, and even more, something like 2.4 billion by our best estimate, who lack a minimally adequate sanitation system. The Romans introduced an improved sanitation system to Rome in the time of Claudius, two millennia ago. 2,000 years later, there are still 2.4 billion people on the planet who don't enjoy that basic amenity and that basic human right. It's estimated there are more than 3 billion people who live in rural areas around the planet who eke out their living from degraded soils. And the number of people who've been displaced by extreme weather events now tops 20 million people annually. So I have worked on the governance dimensions of these issues and on the political dimensions of these issues for some three decades now, with much of that work occurring in and on and around the United Nations. So I have had the privilege of offering expert remarks to the International Law Commission uh, as it attempts to prepare a draft treaty for signature by UN member states on protecting the environment in the context of armed conflict. Uh, I have worked for many years in a volunteer advisory capacity with the United Nations Environment Program, specifically its branch that works on disaster and conflict, as they attempt to help war-torn societies and societies recovering from disaster to put sustainable development, good environmental governance, and smart natural resources management at the center uh, of recovery strategies. Uh, I have conducted interviews in and on and around the UN Security Council on the way that climate change affects the activities of that body and the way that it might find a role and a voice uh, for itself on climate issues. And I've had many dealings over the years with civil society organizations as they try to press the UN to be better uh, and smarter on these issues. And I have to say that as I've done that work, I have come to watch the UN grow less effective over time and in many ways increasingly marginal to the great matters and great challenges of global environmental governance. An organization that once led the fight on climate change, biodiversity loss, desertification, has frankly grown unable to create new agreements on pressing environmental issues. It's been unable to strengthen existing agreements it is lagging badly in achieving the sustainable development goals that it set for the world's nations in 2015 and was lagging even before COVID dealt such a body blow to those efforts. On climate change, it has been unable to do better than a weak and essentially voluntary agreement that falls far short of what we need. The UN does a lot of important work. I don't mean to disparage the importance of much of what gets done. And in fact, all of those statistics that I gave you at the start of the talk are sourced from UN data collection and monitoring activities, and we need that. It wasn't always this way. Back at the time of the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, many people looked to that, and I agree, as sort of the high watermark for both the United Nations and for global environmental governance in general, with treaties on climate change, biodiversity, desertification, and an Agenda 21 blueprint for sustainable development into the 21st century. But 20 years later, in 2012, when the UN called member states back to Rio de Janeiro for another global summit, the situation was far different. Unable to agree on a, a new convention for the world's oceans, unable to agree on funding mechanisms for sustainable development or climate finance, unable to agree 
on several key specific elements of the sustainable development goals. And in the end, kicking all of the hard questions on the table back into the UN General Assembly, as though the General Assembly were not exactly the same member states gathered in Rio and unable to agree. At the end of that summit, a watered down and rambling communique was released. Uh, and even that was only possible because of some 11th hour intervention diplomatically uh, by the Brazilian hosts who skillfully removed all of the contentious items from the document so that governments could agree uh, to release it. One prominent environmental activist when re reading that final communique simply tweeted that it was the longest suicide note in history. So one small piece of evidence indicating this decline. In the book, I try to tell the history of this and measure it in many different ways. And I won't belabor that here, but just one small bit of evidence. In the period following World War II, the annual rate of agreeing to international environmental treaties. We hit the high watermark right at the 1992 Earth Summit, and we've been in a fairly precipitous and steady decline ever since is even more troubling in many ways. The rate of amendment and revision of the existing agreements that we have. Given the uncertainty, given the new science we're acquiring all the time, given the change in scope of the problems, it's critically important that the treaty frameworks that we create be flexible and dynamic and living and breathing and adaptive. And we're not agreeing and we're not innovating. And that's really quite problematic. So, as I came to see this pattern of decline, and as I said, the UN still does much vital work on the environment, but the, the broad pattern is pretty clearly in the direction of declining influence and declining coherence. And as I watched this, I also came to notice a, a puzzling pattern about how the UN goes about engaging in the world's environmental challenges. And that's really at the heart of the work I'm talking about today and that's being recognized today. And to unravel that puzzle and see that pattern, it's worth taking just a moment to go back to the end of World War II and the UN's founding. It's fascinating to note the environment, the word environment does not appear in the UN Charter. And in some ways that's understandable if we think about it. The delegates that gathered in San Francisco in 1945 uh, for the final negotiations on the charter, um, they didn't see the planet as the fragile and intensely interconnected system that we know it to be today. Consider the earth had never been seen from space at that time. Many of these delegates were posted in Mexico City or in Washington or in Ottawa, and they were taking a train across this vast continental expanse of the United States to get to San Francisco and seeing this resource rich terrain unfold uh, before their eyes uh, in a way that many of them had never seen it before. Um, the big wake-up call about humanity's destructive power, the use of nuclear weaponry at the end of World War II, was still several weeks away later in the summer of 1945, um, August, the North American summer, sorry, uh, when, uh, when they gathered. So it's no surprise they didn't see the environment as one of the great missions uh, of the organization. What they did see as the mission of the organization was quite clear. They gave it a four-part mandate that constitute the four legs on which the UN continues to stand to this day and is right there in the preamble to the Charter of, of the United Nations. Save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. Address the problem of human rights, the dignity and worth of the human person. 
create an international system governed not by the naked exercise of power, but by agreed upon laws and rules and development, although another word that doesn't appear in the charter, but clearly the spirit of what they were calling for when they talked about promoting social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. That was the basis on which the UN was founded, and it's the basis on which all of the work that it does today continues to occur. Peace and security, human rights, international law, and development. But the curious pattern that I noticed was that If you look at the way that the UN engages with environmental questions, desertification, deforestation, climate change, whatever it may be, we see lots of emphasis on two of the pillars and very little in the other two. Lots of activity in international law, treaty negotiations and so on. Lots of activity around the theme of sustainable development. Very little on peace, very little on human rights, although there are some important exceptions, and I will, in fact, talk about those today. In fact, if, if the UN were said to have a grand strategy about global environmental governance, it would be something like better law between nations and smarter development within them. But given the four-part mandate, to engage the environment that way is a little bit like a horse trying to balance on the two left side legs underneath its body, while the two legs on the other side of its body dangle uselessly in the air, maybe touch the ground occasionally to restabilize the beast. Clearly, this is not a horse that's walking forward on a steady gait, much less galloping at the pace that we need it to move today. And I became convinced that this off-balance posture was an important part of the story of the UN's growing ineffectiveness and political irrelevance. And so when I set out to write this book, I really tackled three questions. How do we get to this point? Why is that the case? Why that unbalanced posture? Why does that matter? Why does the grand strategy not work particularly effective in the contemporary global environmental sphere? And what can we do about it? And so I won't spend too much time on that first question of how we got here, except to say it's partly a story, and this may be obvious, about the interests of powerful member states. You often hear it said that the UN can only do what member states will allow it to do. And there's some truth in that statement, of course. Sometimes it's used as an excuse and governments will hide behind each other in inaction, but certainly there's some truth to it. But there's more to the story than just that. It's also a story of history. It's a story about the fight that was waged by newly independent former colonies when they gained political sovereignty to try to gain sovereignty over their natural resources, the plundering of which had been so central to colonialism. The UN was founded by 50 nations. Today, there are almost 200. And as we got dozens of new member states coming from Asia in the 1950s, from Africa in the 1960s, they were determined to exert full sovereign control over their natural resources as the key to their own political and economic development. And so the question of natural resources was the great struggle in the origins of the UN for the first few decades. And it was a struggle that was largely won in favor of the concept of permanent sovereignty over natural resources. Now, it's interesting that the countries that fought this battle, they saw this as a human rights issue and they used the human rights apparatus of the UN to make it so. But it is the emphasis on the rights of states and it pushed the question of the rights of people into the background with important consequences, as I think we'll see in a moment. So by the time we fast forward to the 1970s and the global environmental challenge bursts onto the scene with the modern environmental movement arising, the idea that nature 
was a sovereign affair was already deeply embedded in the in the, in the DNA uh, uh, of, of the organization. The story about how it got to be this way is also partly a story about the bureaucracy of the UN and the internal workings of the organization itself. Uh, policy entrepreneurs who knew how to read the bureaucratic incentives grew in the direction of environmental law and environment and development and turf battles and other factors would cut off their ability to grow policy agendas in the directions of human rights uh, or, or of peace. So in some ways that history is just a story of bureaucratic politics. But you know, it's important to note the UN is more than just an organization chart. I think of it as being akin to a coral reef. A coral reef is a complex ecosystem and the anchor species in the ecosystem, which is the coral itself, creates a reef onto which various other life forms can attach themselves and engage in complex and symbi symbiotic forms uh, of interaction. Well, in the UN's case, those species are civil society, advocacy groups, social movements, reform-minded governments, researchers, business enterprises. And in the history of this, the, the, in, the incentive structure meant that the coral reef flourished and thrived in the legal apparatus and space of the UN and in the developmental apparatus, but it didn't have the same conditions for thriving around peace and around human rights. And the final piece of this history that I want to flag before we push on to, to what's happening today um, is it's also a powerful story about the role of ideas. As awareness around global environmental challenges emerged in the 1970s, the dominant perception of the global environment was that the problem was a so-called tragedy of the commons. And that framing catalyzed efforts to create better collective governance and global rules among nations um, collectively before individual nations, much like the shepherds in the original story of the tragedy of the commons, would cause irreversible harm uh, given their individual profit-seeking uh, behavior. Well, there's many problems actually with the tragedy of the, uh, of the commons as a story and as a parable. And, and that's actually not how the original English commons worked uh, and the reasons, it, it, it often sustained itself quite well for centuries and the reasons for decline were different and so on. But as a metaphor and as idea, it was a very powerful idea and it stuck. And by the time we get to the 1980s, the additionally powerful of idea of sustainable development propagated by the Brundtland Commission, a previous winner of the Grommeyer Award for Ideas Improving World Order, I'm, I'm pleased to say, for their important work. So we now have the twin pillars of the law and development strategy really reinforced ideationally. And meanwhile, other potentially powerful ideas are not flourishing or are only flourishing later. So the idea that the environment could be a source of violent conflict or a tool for peace has a very long pedigree, but it really has only gained credence and traction in the last decade or so, driven by climate change concerns in particular. I published a book 20 years ago called Environmental Peacemaking with some colleagues of mine, trying to launch and promote the idea that the environment could be a powerful force for peace, bringing actors together in cooperation. And we were met with frank skepticism when we published that book. And it's only in recent years that we see some of those ideas begin to gain traction. And in the same manner, the idea of the environment as a human right 
was blunted by the Cold War divide around human rights for decades, with the West favoring the idea of human rights as liberal political instruments, protection against the tyrannical state, and the Soviet bloc and third world blocs in the UN's favoring the idea of material socioeconomic rights and the environment sort of getting caught in between because it really only works as a human right if it's both a political right and a socioeconomic right at the same time. And we're breaking in just to remind you that you are listening to Ken Konka giving his April 13th Grawmeyer Award Lecture on Global Environmental Governance. Ken Konka was the 2021 L Grawmeyer Award winner for Ideas Improving World Order. And he spoke about the ideas set forth in his book, An Unfinished Foundation, the United Nations and Global Environmental Governance, back on April 13th here virtually in Louisville. And we'll get back to him right now. So it's partly a story about how ideas caused parts of the coral reef to flourish and didn't provide that motive force in other places. So turning to the question that's probably of greater interest, why doesn't this work and what could we do about it? I would offer you three observations. One reason why the grand strategy of better law between nations and better development within them doesn't work is simply globalization. And that law and development strategy, it reflects a sort of a quaint 19th century vision of how international relations and diplomacy function, in which countries exert sovereign control within their borders and coordinate affairs outside and across their borders. I'm not sure the world ever really worked that way, but it certainly bears no resemblance to the 21st century global political economy of global production platforms of commodity chains like palm oil production or the manufacture of computers or the manufacture of t-shirts, commodity chains that snake in and out and around and across borders, perhaps a dozen times from raw material to ultimate consumer use. Globally integrated capital markets that move money around in a flash. A world that's so interconnected that everything from ideas to pollutants to refugees to new diseases can cross borders in a heartbeat. And there are some big problems with trying to regulate pollution and environmental damage through treaty mechanisms at the international level and legislative mechanisms at the domestic level in that kind of world. There's just too many hiding spaces beyond the reach of either national laws or international treaty rules. Um, In the book, I use the example of toxics and the attempt to control the toxic waste trade. And it's like squeezing a balloon. You squeeze it in one place and it swells out somewhere else. So governments write a treaty trying to regulate the trade in toxic waste from industrialized north to less developed south. And immediately actors start exploiting the recycling loophole in the treaty. So you could peel the paper off of a disposable lead acid battery. And that battery is no longer considered toxic waste if you recycle the label, it's now considered recycling. So they close the recycling loophole and then the South-South trade starts to blossom which the regime never even envisioned trying to regulate. And again, we're squeezing a balloon that keeps swelling out in, in other spaces as we try to contain it. There's always gonna be another place where toxics can be dumped, where polluting industries can be offshored and landscapes that could be sacrificed to oil and gas production or to mining 
or to the various appetites of global consumerism. This is where the missing and unused leg of human rights becomes so critical. It becomes important for communities that are on the receiving end of those environmental insults to have the rights-based power to say no. And that's where we need that third leg to be planted firmly on the ground. The second problem with this law and development strategy is the conflict trap. If you look at the list of countries that are most in need of sustainable development, that are most vulnerable to climate change, that struggle the most to provide clean air and clean water for their citizens, well, it's the same set of countries that are racked by war and political violence and instability. Of the UN peacekeeping operations that are in the field today, 80% of the soldiers deployed as peacekeepers under the UN flag and wearing the blue helmet are in countries that are in the top 10 list of climate vulnerable nations. It's estimated that something like one third to one half of all the international development assistance that is given gets subsequently blown away by a war or by a disaster. Sustainable development is not possible under those conditions. And if conflict is bad for environmentally sound development, the opposite is also true. Environmental problems can be a threat to the peace. We know from research that conflicts in which natural resources are centrally implicated, they're more protracted, they require larger investments in post-conflict recovery. If they draw a peacekeeping mission from the Security Council, it's going to be more expensive, it's going to be on the ground longer. Under these conditions, when war cripples environmental sustainability, and when environmental sustainability becomes a risk factor for war, we see downward spirals. And the UN, its tools of peacekeeping, of preventive diplomacy, and of conflict resolution are another critical tool, not just for peace, but for environmental governance. And the third reason that the strategy is not thriving is simply that it's run out of political momentum, as, as I was saying earlier. Now, there's plenty of citizen energy around the planet for environmental protection, for environmental justice, for environmental rights. The problem is that energy has gotten increasingly disconnected from the coral reef that is the United Nations. And it may be that most of that energy will always resonate at the national level. But if it's gonna be a force that re-energizes governance to step up to the task, then it's going to have to be internationally connected in ways that the UN and its coral reef can very strongly facilitate. The other place where we may find that political energy is geopolitical. There are some 2 million people that live in small islands, primarily in the Pacific, that are perceiving this existential threat all too immediately and all too directly as the effects of climate change increasingly ramp up. If we add to that 1 or 2 million people, the number of people who live in low-lying floodplains in nations such as Bangladesh, we are now talking about tens of millions of people, not a few million. And so perhaps if governments are not persuaded by narratives about sustainable economic growth or about environmental justice, perhaps the question of peace and stability can get their attention. Now, we need to be careful with this. There's a danger that in emphasizing those issues, rather than incentivizing cooperation, what you do is incentivize governments to hunker down behind their barricades and try to insulate themselves from these problems, even though that's not really feasible to do. We don't want to militarize or securitize the logic of our environmental responses. The key is not to get them to hunker down, but to find ways to tap that logic of cooperative peace building. We don't have the luxury 
of being divided by conflict under these circumstances. So what do we do? Well, the book talks about many ideas, and I won't try to cover them all in the remaining minutes that we have for this talk. And it's also been a few years since the book was published, and so it's an opportunity to give a bit of an update about which of these ideas have gained traction and which maybe are still, you know, playing the long game, so to speak. So I'll simply offer a few observations here uh, and say a little bit about some of the emergent activities that, that give me some hope about a more engaged and re-energized uh, United Nations and global environmental governance. First, I think it's time to declare a human right to a safe and healthy environment. The United Nations Human Rights Council has been debating this issue for a couple of decades now, and I think it's time to stop the debate and put the full moral force of the UN behind the idea that people have the right to breathable air, clean water, and to participate in the environmental decisions uh, that affect them. This is an idea that is gaining traction around the world. My own state of Maryland in the United States, the, the, the local jurisdiction that I live in, uh, has an ongoing campaign for legislation to make the environment a human right in the state of Maryland. Uh, in 2017, France passed a very interesting law, the duty of vigilance law, that requires companies to take responsibility for human rights and environmental protection all along the supply chain that they're engaged in, not simply inside the confines and borders of France. That could be a very powerful tool in the context of globalization I was talking earlier. In many countries around the world, Colombia, India, New Zealand, we're seeing the idea that rivers themselves have legal rights, that they have legal personhood, begin to gain traction in court decisions and in legislation. But it's still patchwork and it's still national level developments. It doesn't have the globally integrated character uh, that we need it to have. That's very powerful symbolically, but I wanna stress that it's not just a symbolic tool, it's an actual tool. The UN affirming human right to the environment is a tool that allows for more effective naming and shaming of bad actors. We've seen that in the decades since the General Assembly declared a human right to water. And it's also a norm that can be used in domestic legal systems. Not too long ago, there was a very important court case in Botswana affirming the water rights of indigenous communities in, in that nation. And when the court was looking around for a basis for that decision, it invoked not simply national legislation in Botswana, but that very same General Assembly declaration about the human right to water. Not all legal systems in the world are equally open to that sort of an international normative influence. Certainly in the United States, that's not the case. But in many nations, it is, either because it's just a more transnational legal culture, or in many cases, because it's a relatively young legal order that doesn't have a big body of precedent and case law to draw upon. And so jurists will look around for the basis for a decision where they can find it, including in international norms declarations. So I, while symbolic, I think this is an extremely uh, important tool in the hands of domestic actors uh, in, the, in, in the legal sphere. A second thing that it's really important to do and a much more practical application of human rights apparatus of the UN is to start defending environmental defenders much more seriously. You may be familiar with the Goldman Prize. It's an award. It's, you can think of it as the Nobel Prize for grassroots environmental activists. And the award was created to call attention to their work and to the ideas behind their work and their campaigns for positive change. It was also created, however, to shine a spotlight on them and to protect them, frankly, because the work they do is quite dangerous. Well, in the last five years, we have seen two former Goldman Prize winners murdered for their work. Um, 
And the best data that we have, which is collected by an NGO called Global Witness, they just published their 2019 data. More environmental activists killed than any year for which we have, uh, in fact, historical data. And over the last 15 years or so, the number of environmental activists who've been killed or disappeared, it's roughly akin to the number of journalists that have died in the line of duty. We know that it's dangerous to cover the news in a war zone or to do muckraking investigative journalism. Well, it turns out it's dangerous to do environmental activist work as well. And we need the apparatus of the UN human rights system to shine a spotlight on those activities and to remind countries of their responsibilities to defend and protect the rights of people who are engaging in policy processes. A third thing that we need to do, shifting from human rights to the peace and security side of the UN, is we need to find the right role for the UN Security Council on the environment and particularly uh, on climate change. The council has been trying to talk about climate change for some 15 years now. It first began debating the question in 2007, and it still really hasn't found its voice. The most recent of those efforts was just three weeks ago, and some of you may have seen in the news, it was a session that was chaired by the United Kingdom. And it's interesting to see who showed up at that session. So it was chaired by Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the UK, suggesting that it was a high political moment. That's not usually who chairs a topical debate in the Security Council. It's usually just the permanent representative to the country, maybe a foreign minister if it's, if it's an important thing. The head of state, that's a big deal. Joe Biden sent John Kerry, his special climate envoy, to represent the United States in those dialogues. The UN Secretary General, Mr. Guterres, showed up to give an address, which he doesn't always do for those sorts of events. The British filmmaker David Attenborough was one of the featured speakers. And uh, Nisreen Elsame, a youth climate activist coming from Sudan, who's done a lot on this question. Well, on the one hand, we see that it's a high political moment. On the other hand, if the keynote speakers are a youth activist and a filmmaker, you know, we're still in the mode of politics of attracting media attention, setting the agenda, calling attention to the wider purpose. And it doesn't really answer the question of what can the council usefully do besides just talk? The council, no one is proposing that it be the centerpiece of UN climate efforts. Frankly, it doesn't have the legitimacy to do that. It doesn't have the representativeness as a body. It's not the General Assembly. Five countries have the veto. Other countries are wary of that. It's never going to be the centerpiece. But it's not useful if it's just a talking shop either. And so the question is, what can be done? Well, I've written about this and I updated that in an article that appeared in Environment Magazine at the beginning of last year that people can reference if they're interested in reading the details. But we need the council to be smarter, to strengthen its own ability to collect and process information and, and manage early warnings so that it can do its own work in fragile and conflict-affected nations uh, in a climate-smart manner. We needed to pay attention to the legitimacy concerns of countries that are wary of the council by doing that work first and foremost in countries that want the help and that want to be on the council's agenda. The nations in the Lake Chad Basin are an interesting example of that, that have had some interesting engagements with the council around their climate vulnerability. To take one example, Iraq is another country uh, that has been very interested in engaging the council on this. The council needs to show leadership, and I think the best way to do that is to challenge countries that want to be on the council to explain how they would exert leadership and find a role for the council that is both effective and legitimate and what that would look like. Japan, Brazil, India, Germany, 
These are countries that want a permanent seat on an expanded and reformed and plausibly more legitimate Security Council. We don't have that yet, and we're not going to have it in the next few years, but it is coming. And so the time is now to start challenging countries to explain why their bid for a seat should be successful in the face of this pressing global issue. We're starting to see the countries that campaign for a temporary seat on the council, a two-year rotating seat that you can get elected to, campaign on climate change. And that's a good trend that should be encouraged because we're starting to get some innovative ideas. We're starting to legitimize uh, an appropriate, limited but effective council role. And finally, it would be very valuable if the five permanent members of the council could find a way in their climate initiatives to attach a peace building component to that, even if it were simply for symbolic terms. During the Obama administration, the United States and China agreed on an important collaborative effort, I believe it was in 2016 or so, on climate. And the fact that they did not brand that in part as a stabilizing peace building, security enhancing venture, I think that was a missed opportunity. Uh, and if there's another such opportunity, it would be a shame to miss it. And the final suggestion that I'll mention here is, it's time for the UN to commit to a responsibility to protect for people who have been rendered vulnerable by climate change and other forms of environmental displacement. And this is a very controversial idea, to be fair. The UN does heroic work for refugees of war and famine, but it's time to recognize that many of those people are fleeing the effects of climate change, of intensifying natural disasters, of the slow violence of damage to local ecosystems and livelihoods. The General Assembly and the United Nations as a whole has recognized that when it comes to genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity, that individual nations have a responsibility to protect their citizens from those horrors, but also that the system as a whole, when individual nations are unwilling or unable, also has that responsibility. It's time to extend a similar construct to the victims of environmental change, environmental displacement, and of climate change. This needs to have a proactive, preventive stance primarily, but it also needs to recognize the ethical obligation to provide assistance when that prevention fails us. This is a controversial idea. About a decade ago, there was a cyclone in Myanmar, and the French essentially tried to invoke the responsibility to protect, which the Security Council frequently invokes if it's implementing sanctions or peacekeeping operations or other sorts of using some of its more commanding powers. The French tried to invoke it because the government of Myanmar, wary and suspicious of international aid organizations, they closed the borders for several days after the cyclone, making it impossible for international relief efforts to function. Uh, and the French tried to use the responsibility to protect to force Myanmar to open its borders. And there was very little support for that within the council and within the wider UN system. And so this is a process that's going to, we may need to talk first about a responsibility to prevent and a responsibility to prepare, but those need to be moving in the direction of a responsibility to protect. It's contentious, it's controversial. One of my colleagues told me that I would be persona non grata at the UN for proposing this sort of a notion, but it's coming. And I think we need to prepare and we need to be ready and we need to frame it. So some of these ideas are hard. Some of them are controversial. They're reforms that would require a long-term struggle. Others I'd say we're starting to see some traction. 
as I said, governments campaigning for a seat on the council are now starting to put climate change in their campaign platforms. And we're getting some creative ideas as a result. That's a good trend that needs to be nurtured and encouraged. Secretary General himself has started to refer to climate justice as a human rights issue, not simply as a global challenge or as an economic issue. And he's also started to shine a spotlight on the problem of violence against environmental defenders, which I applaud. And that's a choice that needs to be nurtured and encouraged and built upon. We're seeing growing recognition around the UN in peace building operations, on the ground recovery operations, that the environment is not just a conflict risk, that it's a peace building tool. And then it can be used to, to re-engage people in the process of development, in the process of reconciliation, in the process of building, uh, building retrust and recovering from the damage of war or the damage uh, uh, of disaster. So I, I guess I would just say in conclusion, and I'll look forward to your questions and comments, but I, I would say that the challenges are great. These developments that I'm pointing to are really just the starting point. You know, they're the grass growing up through the cracks in the concrete, but they do show me that change is possible. And so they give me some hope that a re-energized re UN can play that leadership role that we very much need from it. And so if this award can call attention to some of these ideas, then I think that's a very powerful force for change. But what I value most is the attention that it can draw to the idea that we need a re-energized United Nations uh, in global environmental governance. And so for the opportunity to call attention to those ideas, I'm truly grateful. And, and I thank you very much. And I look forward to your, your questions and your comments. Thank you very much, Ken. That was a great presentation, a lot to think about there. It's important when you think about, say, the newly transitioned states in the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, certainly the developing world too. This is from Sukhaina Tarif, who says, how do you balance preserving or protecting the environment and developing a higher standard of living for humans, particularly when there has been such a high correlation between CO2 emissions and GDP per capita? It's a great question. It's one of the great questions in, in this domain. And so thank you very much for the question. The first thing to say, I think, is that there's abundant evidence that sustainability is more of a foundation for economic growth than it is a hindrance to economic growth. I don't want to deny that there are sometimes trade-offs. And that raises equity concerns. We have to ask, whose responsibility is it to manage these problems, given the, the brutal inequality that we see around the world and the vast discrepancies in, in standards of living. But the first point to make is that don't accept the premise that there's an inherent trade-off. There was a really interesting study, again, a study that was catalyzed by the United Nations called the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. It was done around the turn of the millennium. It remains the most detailed, deep dive look at the status of, of ecosystems of various kinds around the world. Rainforests, coastal zone ecosystems, freshwater ecosystems. That study came to the conclusion that wetlands, bogs, swamps, riverine ecosystems, floodplains, they only cover about 1% of the surface area of the planet, but they're extraordinarily biologically product productive. They are critical tools for flood resilience and disaster resilience because they have an enormous capacity to absorb surging floodwaters and to store water and then to release it during dry conditions. And there's all sorts of ways in which those wetlands 
they already are providing us with a foundation for economic growth and development. The Millennium Ecosystem Assessment concluded that the value of wetlands, the economic dollar-denominated value of wetlands in their natural state was greater than anything that we could do by converting that land into other forms of use. So before we accept the idea that there's a trade-off between environmental protection and jobs or environmental protection and land use or environmental protection uh, and livelihoods, the first thing we need to do is understand that environmental protection is a critical foundation for all of the above. That said, there certainly are places where we have to look at existing inequalities and say, you know, we may have a common responsibility, but we don't have an equal responsibility. There was a very poignant moment in one of the Security Council hearings when the ambassador uh, from Nigeria was speaking and looked around the room, and I'm going to be paraphrasing here, and basically said, look, sitting around this room are the government's that have the power to do something about this issue. If you look at the five permanent members of the Security Council and you look at those four or five aspirational countries that want to be permanent members of the Council, you're looking at the top 10 emitters of, of greenhouse gases and contributors with one or two exceptions on the planet. I was once looking at something that came out of China that essentially said, this, and this is this 25 years ago, I'm, I'm showing my age, that essentially said, look, you know, you drove this sport utility vehicle up to the precipice of the chasm. And now you're complaining that it's our weight in the back seat that's going to tip it over the edge. Uh, and for just from a basic ethics and equity point of view, that, that won't do. And so it is important to make space for processes of, of economic development, for conversion of land, for the use of, of natural resources. And to try to do that in a sustainable manner, I think there's ample opportunity to do it, but I think it starts with a sort of a first do no harm principle of recognizing the economic value that underpins our well-being through those systems. It's a great question, and it's one that we grapple with all the time. And that's how the Grommer Award Lecture wrapped up on April 13th when Ken Conka spoke virtually to the Louisville community at the 2021 Grommer Award Talk on Ideas for Improving World Order. Ken Conka, author of the incredible book, An Unfinished Foundation, The United Nations and Global Environmental Governance. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you got psyched for taking some local action for sustainability because we got your community action calendar coming up right now here on Sustainability Now. So stay tuned. gonna set them free yeah, yeah. set me free yeah, yeah. set me free and we're rolling on the river ooh child she's an easy giver yeah. and we're diving in the lake good lord she Swimming in the sea, I said, Ooh, good Lord, come set me free, yeah. Down by the water side, we take.
here on Forward Radio with your community action calendar. So many ways to get involved in sustainability right now here in Louisville. May is here and May is Bike Month and the Louisville Metro government is celebrating Bike Month 2021 by encouraging you all to bike more while gaining input on the future of our Louvelo bike share system. You can celebrate with a free Bluegrass Pass. Download the Transit app on your smartphone. Use the code BIKEMONTH2, that's the number two, and receive a free Bluegrass Pass, which gives you unlimited 60-minute rides for 24 hours anytime you want, any day of the month during May. You can also win a free e-bike by uh, taking the survey about Louvelo. It's a bike. It, the, the bike is a Trek Verve Plus 2. In partnership with Scheller's Fitness and Cycling, Louisville Metro Government is providing a Trek Verve Plus 2. This is an electric hybrid that will help you get out and ride more. Your daily cruises, commutes, and workouts will all get a boost from the reliable Bosch pedal assist system. Plus, this e-bike is equipped with parts that put your comfort and safety first, like a road-smoothing suspension seat post, wide stable tires, and front and rear lights. You can learn more. Download the app at louvelo.com and find more information and the link to the survey at facebook.com slash bike.louisville. That's facebook.com slash bike.louisville. Now, Tuesday, May 11th at 7 p.m., Louisville Showing Up for Racial Justice will hold its monthly meeting via Zoom. And from 7 to 7.30, they welcome new folks and go over the basics of what it means to be a white person engaged in fighting racism in our community. Join us before the meeting if you want to learn more about Louisville showing up for racial justice. Then, from 7.30 to 8.30, they choose a topic to explore further. For the next few meetings, they'll be discussing strategic campaigns and actions. This is the perfect meeting to attend, and we encourage you to invite a friend, family member, or co-worker. You get the idea. Feel free to join at either 7 or 7.30 on Tuesday the 11th. And uh, you can register at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash L-Surge meeting. That's L-S-U-R-J meeting. And, of course, you can learn more about L-Surge at Louisville, S-U-R-J dot org. And later in the week, the National Surge Group will host White Supremacy Characteristics Webinar on Thursday, May 13th at 8 p.m. 20 years ago, inspired by and collaborating with dozens of movement leaders, Tima Okun wrote the article White Supremacy Culture Characteristics as an offering to our movements for racial justice. This work has been shared across the world and inspired countless organizers working to dismantle white supremacy. Well, we'll 
we'll hear from Scott Nakagawa from Change Lab, New, uh, North Carolina Poet Laureate Jackie Shelton Green, Skill in Actions Michael Johnson, Vivette Jeffries Logan of Bewa Consulting, Carrie Points from Finding Freedom, Serge's Misha Hage Mariano, and Christina Rivera Chapman and Justin Robinson from Earthseed Land Collective. Sounds like a great crew on Thursday the 13th. There is a suggested $10 registration fee, but no one will be turned away for lack of funds. And all registration fees will go to support the Earthseed Land Collective, a black and brown-led center for community resilience focused on collective healing, cultural arts, food justice, food sovereignty, and cooperative learning in Durham, North Carolina. Register to be emailed a recording, and they will also post a recording on Facebook. So you can register for the Thursday 8 p.m. White Supremacy Characteristics webinar Again, at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash W-S culture webinar. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash W-S culture webinar. Now, coming up on Saturday, May 15th, from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., there are a couple of exciting tree plantings. You're going to have to choose which neighborhood you want to plant trees in on Saturday morning. First of all, Louisville Groves is hosting a Beachmont neighborhood tree planting, and they need your help planting 100 trees on the south side during the spring's final tree planting on Saturday morning in the Beachmont neighborhood. They'll be planting in areas of Metro Council 21 that are heavily impacted by urban deforestation due to their proximity to industrial and airport-related activities. Currently, District 21 has a tree canopy of just 16%, whereas a healthy tree canopy is considered to be at least 40%. District 21 is among the districts in Louisville that produce the largest urban heat islands. Louisville Grows serves neighborhoods that are most impacted by the urban heat island effect and needs your help to increase the tree canopy in South Louisville. As always, the well-being of our volunteers is the number one priority, so they'll be following CDC and state guidelines to ensure a safe and healthy event. Registration is required. You can visit tinyurl.com slash beachmont may 2021 to sign up for the event. Details and the link to register are also at facebook.com slash Louisville Grows. And another neighborhood that suffers from the urban heat island effect and an incredible percentage of impervious surfaces is the Paris Town Point neighborhood just off East Broadway. There'll be a tree planting there as well on Saturday morning, 10, 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on Lampton Street. Volunteers are needed to help with this community tree planting organized by Louisville Metro Parks and Recreation. They'll be planting about a dozen trees and empty tree wells on Lampton Street between Swan and Vine. And you should be able to find the details and a link to register coming up soon at facebook.com slash Parks L-O-U-K-Y Parks. Also on Saturday uh, the 15th at 11 a.m., there'll be a downtown loop walking tour for Preservation Month, meeting up at the historic Brennan House, 631 South 5th Street. It's the next Society of Urban Perambulators walk when we'll be guided walking loop around the south, south central part of downtown Louisville with our field guides, the Vital Sites team. This event will give us an opportunity to see some of our historic buildings that 
that are being reimagined and reused, breathing new life into the heart of our city. We will meet at the historic Brennan House at 631 South 5th Street at 10.45 a.m., beginning the stroll at 11 a.m. on Saturday morning. The loop will take us to Broadway, 6th Street, Muhammad Ali Boulevard, 3rd Street, Chestnut Street, and finally back to 5th. There are a lot of sights to see and hear about along the way, as well as interesting building details and views most people don't get driving by in a car. Looking forward to seeing everyone and taking a fresh look at downtown. The events are open to all, but in order to keep walking group sizes manageable and to maintain safe physical distancing, they need to know how many are planning to join. So if you'd like to walk, see, and talk about neighborhoods and cities and want to join us, you can please RSVP. Find the link at udstudio.org. That's Urban Design Studio at udstudio.org. Another great walk happening on Sunday the 16th uh, from 8.30 to 10.30 a.m. out at Bernheim in Claremont, Kentucky is a birding walk on Birding Basics, a family-friendly guide. During quarantine, many families and individuals discovered the joy of birding in their backyards and neighborhoods. Because Bernheim is such an amazing place to learn how to go birding or to hone newly acquired birding skills, they are providing several birding programs this season. You will find birding programs for beginners, intermediate, and slightly more advanced birders. Space is limited for safety, so register early. Social distancing and masks are required and no pets are allowed. Please dress for the weather and wear shoes you don't mind getting earthy. There is a small registration fee, which is due by 4 p.m. on Friday, and you can register by calling 502-955-8512 or just go to bernheim.org and look for the Sunday, May 16th, 8.30 a.m. birding walk on birding basics and lastly on sunday the 16th another great opportunity to get outside is the making a fossil collection family nature club at 3 p.m at the falls of the ohio state park over in clarksville indiana a family nature club favorite kids can make a fossil collection from the park's fossil collecting piles behind the interpretive center meet at those piles in the back of the parking lot and learn about fossils and how to recognize them participants will label and attach their finds to a collection card. Removing fossils from anywhere else in the park is against the law. Interpretive Center admission is not required. There is a $2 program fee paid at the admissions desk and a parking fee. So consider biking or hiking to the lovely big uh, across the lovely Big Four Bridge and the Ohio River Greenway to get over there. The Family Nature Club was created in 2015 to encourage families with children aged of tw- age 4 to 12 to get outside with friends and do something fun. Make time to enjoy nature with good company. Activities are designed to promote thinking and club activities last no more than one hour. You get all the details at fallsoftheohio.org about the Sunday, May 16th, 3 p.m. Making a Fossil Collection Family Nature Club. Go to fallsoftheohio.org. And that is all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. It's been great having you along for the ride and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well. Kentucky's soul fly free. Now I'm a man. I live in the big city. It's a crazy life. Don't bother me. 